I have a major announcement. Oh. Yeah? I have found out, mm-hmm. under credible authority, i.e. a drunk woman in a bar in Huddersfield. <laughs> yeah. That I'm all right. That, in fact, oh. we're all <laughs> all right. And she wants to be our friend because oh. she ain't discriminatory like all them other cunts. And she admires my confidence. And oh, I... she'll be happy to be my friend and be seen with me. I... And she's so progressive I... because oh. of that. And um, I just I thought exactly. I'd make that announcement while oh. I make a trophy, not for me, for being all right, but for her, for being so open and progressive and just cool and chill. Yeah, we, um, we had a night out at the weekend and we sure did meet a couple of, um, (laughs) there was a couple of, there was a couple of interactions with people who were very, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be very loud and vocal about how much I respect you for you and I think you're beautiful and strong for being you. To the point that it gets really weird. Yes. Um, it, was, it was a weird night for that. There was a, there was a lot of it flowing about. There really was. Um, yeah, we had uh, uh, Laura up north with us. Uh, had a lovely yeah. night. Lovely night because it was, it was it's been Laura's night. birthday and Phoenix's birthday this past week. Um, so we went out on the town and met all sorts of characters. Oh, um, we sure did meet some characters. We sure did. We gathered together, you know, a big group of, of um, queers that we know from yeah. Social Circle and, like, wrestling and stuff like that. Um, went out. Um, had some less savoury interactions. There was, ah, we don't there was some minor hate criming. Yeah, yeah just, minor. Just little ones. Um, but there was one, one girl in particular that we saw at one bar and then later at, at another. Um, oh. A couple members of our group at the earlier bar, had sidled down the table to be with me where I wasn't anywhere near her because oh, they you... didn't want to be near her. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to avoid that. You, you I know remembered what, what first... I said and at, like two hours later when I was trapped alone with her in the other bar. Mm-hmm. <sighs> she was screaming in my face yeah. about you, how okay yeah. she is with me. You, you know what my first inter- you know what my first interaction with her was, and it didn't set me off on a good foot. Is I was trying to tell someone a really, 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 really groan worthy pun joke, um, and I was like two thirds of the way in, and Ooh. this person was invested. I it was it was like I had your hook line and sinker and then she was very intent on starting to tell us how how wonderful we were and I was like I know you're trying to be nice but th- like I've worked too hard to get this punchline out I need to do it I mean you know in all fairness to her she was fucking wankered which yeah <laughs> it's impressive that I could register how wankered she was considering how wankered I was um Considering I'd managed to get myself drunk before we'd even turned up to the bar, because what started as I'll have a little bit of a pregame turned into, well, a couple drinks shy of what she was like. Um, but it was it was a very fun night. We went to a couple bars. Um, I found out that one of the local, uh, well, one of the bars where I do wrestling shows at has a pinball table 
which I'd, I've mm. been there a couple of times, literally performed there. Never saw that. It's a 24 pinball table, so I'm not that interested in it. But pinball's pinball. Um, I did enjoy oh. that when I went up to the bar to get a drink, someone across the bar just yelled, Commander! Um, so it's nice to... I, I very much enjoy getting recognised for the wrestling, um, yeah. as opposed to the oh. other stuff. I always find that particularly gratifying. I, I have a favourite story from that night. And it's it's not a big story, but it, this has brought me joy thinking about like the the world that must have led to this moment. At one of the venues we were at, uh, a woman comes up to me and asks for my help because she's very 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 drunk and she can't write a text. She's tried like eight or nine times to send this message and it's gibberish. So she asks if she can like dictate to me what she wants sent in this message and I could type it for her. And I have a little scroll back to be like, what's the context of this? Um and like the the gist of it is um she did something that her boyfriend wasn't meant to tell anyone about, and then the boyfriend told someone about, and she was very like Oh, well, after all the things I've covered up for you, how dare you grasp me up on this? <laughs> um, but the thing that brings me joy is looking... She sent, like, eight or nine texts in a row that were just, like, absolutely unintelligible. And, like, clearly the boyfriend hadn't been drinking that much, or at least was still typing coherently. So after eight or nine messages of gibberish, there's going to be, like, three sentences this boyfriend receives of very well-articulated, perfectly written, like, response... And then it's going to go back to, like, fumble gibberish. And I want to know how how this mysterious boyfriend, someone in, in the world, is going to process that, because that brings me joy. I mean, yeah. I, I was delighted when you told me that, because it really is just going to look baffling to this person. Yeah, she just had a, a brief moment of coherence and then back to drunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... It was a really good night. Speaking of, um, while you were around here, while you were at my place, you did have a look at the old uh, Deal or No Deal fruit machine. Oh, that um, became a little amateur yeah. fruit machine repair tech. Because oh. I've been having a bit of trouble with it because, um, like, it wasn't broken, but there was, uh, like, software elements that I didn't understand. And you, at a tinker, found out all sorts of stuff, got it into free play mode. Worked out how all the keys work, worked out how to get the alarm to stop going, got right. it into free play mode, worked out how the front comes up and the bit you got to put your full weight on to get to do the thing, and the things you got to slide around. I don't know, I know fruit machines yes. now. I, I, I bring it up predominantly to thank you because the manual for it that you ordered uh, just arrived before we started recording. Is it any help or is it incomprehensible? I literally got it, like... Immediately before we started recording, so I'm going to have to like have a proper look at it. Um, but it should answer any questions I've got about it, and then I can pull that out from the murder basement and find somewhere up here for it. Yeah, I was trying to like Google like deal or no deal. Uh, I forget what take a chance. I think it's called. No help there. I had to get several stages into into like disassembling the thing to work out what the make of fruit machine underneath the hood was. To be able to get answers, so I'm like, okay, we can at least get that far. <laughs> it was my little experiment of the weekend, little Indeed. challenge. And it was a, it was a very lovely weekend. Um, just an incredibly lovely group of friends and uh, very fun night. Um, before we crack on with the business of the day, I, yeah. I would like to 
you know, we, we talk about the games that we've been playing. That's typically what we do. We come in, we have a bit of a banter. Then we talk about yeah. the games we've been playing. And then we move on to, like, the breaking video game news of the day. Yeah. I would, if it's okay, very briefly bring a little element um, forward and just talk okay. about, like, a really sort of important breaking bit of video game news on yeah. Forbes uh, that I was made oh. aware of uh, the yeah. other day. Um I'll just sort of read the, um, this is a news article. Uh, let's just start reading it. Jim Stephanie Sterling, one of the video games media's most well-known and most eccentric critics, does not like Starfield. This may not come as a huge surprise. Sterling has made a name by becoming one of the industry's fiercest and most relentless critics. They rarely, if ever, pull punches. And sometimes, even when I agree with Sterling's broad take, I think they might take it too far. Sometimes I sense real anger brewing in Sterling's content, and sometimes anger can blind us, even if sometimes it can also help us see clearly. Wait, sorry, I'm looking at this. Is this a Forbes article that is just a <laughs> review of your review? It's a Forbes article about my review. Forbes? It's... F- what? Uh, also, I don't think that... I don't even know if yours is the harshest review of Starfield, but the fact that you... What? Sorry, this... How is this... How is how is your opinion of Starfield Forbes news? I, I say, because I'm... I say this in the politest way possible. Because why, why I'm one Forbes of games... Why does what you think? Because I'm one of video game media's most well-known and most eccentric critics, which is now going on you... in all my bylines. Hey, hey, Steph... Um, if you between th- that, that's right up there with me recently being called former games journalist as people were citing my exclusive story. I think we're we're picking up the little nicknames now, right? Oh, we- did I did I did I talk about the other weird nickname I got given in coverage the other day? Um, from fucking of all people, Linus Tech Tips. Are you are you aware of this? I got mentioned in a Linus text tips video for some reason, and I was referred to as thrice first named journalist Laura Kate Dale. Yeah, <laughs> that's I, kind of fun though. It's it's, it's a hell of a it's it's, it's a hell of a a bio to give someone. Yeah, yeah it's, it's curious. It's, but that's I, that's my notable aspect. I got three. The three aspects of my name could all technically be first names. You are correct. I'd never thought about that before. Now you see, this is the kind of insight that I would usually go to Forbes to find. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't. You wouldn't go to um, uh, Bastion of Accurate Reporting currently. Linus I mean, Tech like, Tips. I'll say that for Forbes. Forbes is a, Forbes is accurate. It is by yeah. far the lowest score the game has received and the lowest recorded on Metacritic, though whether that makes Sterling the most honest critic out there or the biggest troll is a matter of opinion. What I love about this article <laughs> is how non-committal it is. Like, this is Eric yeah. Kane at his finest. Um, uh, the, the writer who I've, I've known for... I've, I've known Eric Kane for many years, not sort of personally, but we have been aware of each other's work. And if um, anyone's good at presenting controversial opinions in ways that will get keep him completely out of trouble, it, he's an expert in the field. And that's not me making a value judgment. That's me saying that this is uh, an exquisitely carefully written article. 
I I can respect some aspects of the uh, the dance being played here. It's the, it's essentially just like throwing my review out there to anyone who might agree or have a problem with it while coming down on neither side, but providing plenty of ammo for those sides if they want to <laughs> use it. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like going out. You know, into uh, the middle of a, a war zone and just leaving ordnance about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just be like, hey, if anybody wants to use any of this for any purpose, please feel free. Yeah, yeah. I love when someone just lets me know that I've appeared referenced in something that I had no concept was happening. We're just like, oh, hey, there you are today on the internet. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, cool. yeah. Like, it took me like a week to. For someone to let me know that this was a thing. Um, obviously, I knew that the review had, had sort of blown up. But the one thing I just want to sort of say that I did like that was in there was Forbes mentioned the, um, how did they put it? The social commentary that was in my review, <laughs> uh, where I made mm-hmm. that reference, where I said the line to call Starfield the least broken Bethesda game is akin to calling any single turf the least embarrassing fascist. Then again, given how Zenimax and Bethesda seem to treat trans employees, that comparison may hit too close to home. In fairness, that is probably more written about the subject of that trans person than most other gaming yeah. That's the point I want to make, because yeah. I mm. knew I was going to eat the shit that I've eaten, for including that line because yeah. obviously the people that would would have found any reason to discredit the review had an easy reason to discredit the review in their minds by saying oh it, this is this review is political um this is just about a grudge against Bethesda over that situation and I knew they'd say that but I also knew that they'd discredit it another way if I didn't include it so there was no disincentive but I knew that if I did include it, more people would see that story that had otherwise been completely fucking buried in games media than ever before. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad I ate shit to get that out there. You, through variants of events, got that story onto Forbes. So well done. And yeah, like that, that makes all of the, all, all of the, because I've been harassed over that review more than any oh, other. Yeah. And it's because of that line. And I knew that going in because we've all been doing this job for a long time. We know what they're like. We know what's going to happen. And I knew that, like, that was really sticking my neck out. Not to say, oh, I'm super brave or anything, because, like, I'm going to get harassed no matter what. Um, It isn't any more uh, bold than anything else I've done. But I knew going in that that... A lot of people would hijack any other, anything else I said in the review to focus on that. But good. Because it's a story that should have been focused on, not completely fucking ignored. So, yeah. Just happy about that. Yeah. yeah. And they did get my pronouns right on Forbes. So, mm-hmm. uh, oh, they did. You know. Good on them. Oh, right. We, we, we've we got other news to talk about today, but we'll get to that in a bit because, oh my goodness, this is a fucking week for gaming news. But uh, before we get to that, who's been playing stuff this week? Well, I'll I'll just I'll just get right out of the way. Uh, I I played a little Lies of P uh, specifically. Yeah. 
I played uh, long enough to fight that first guy with the sword. Um, and I fought him five or six times. And I said... Oh, the, on the bridge? No, 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 no. Way before that. Way before... What, bridge? I don't know what you're talking about. No, no, this is this is like the very beginning. Like, tutorial. Like, oh. you, you fight oh, a few marionette guys. Oh, are you talking the, 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 the cop with the trunction? Yeah, him. The cop right. with the trunction. Yeah. Okay, Whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fought him five, six times. Said, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> yeah, I, this isn't gonna... I'm not gonna... I, I, I will incrementally get better at doing this thing, I guess. But th- that's it, and and uh, and I'm done. So it looks it looks great. Uh, the, the the movement it uh, takes some getting used to for me. Um, it's not bad, but it it's it feels. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just the way my frame rate was, which seemed fine too. But I don't know. It felt loose. In a way that I found not fun, uh, it, but that's a me thing. It's not the it, game looks great. I'm sure people are gonna have a lot of fun with another Souls like. Um, it sure is another Souls like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, it seems that way. Um, the other thing I played very briefly, Solar Ash, is this game that just landed on Game oh. Pass. Came out a couple of years ago. Um, I hmm. had never played this before. The I, I put in only about an hour into this too so i really don't have a lot to say about what it does with the very basic elements it's presented me with at the beginning of the game um but you are like a a weird rollerblading um spiritual savior for the earth or something, or your planet's under threat from a, a black hole that's consuming everything, and your people came up with a, a, a thing that can destroy black holes, and it's like a sewing needle or something. I don't know. There's some weird stuff going on here that I don't understand. What I do understand is that it is a very fast action platformer. There is some combat woven into there. You do have a weapon. There are enemies, and it is... it's. One of those where you take two hits and you're dead kind of situations, mm. um, at least at the outset. I'm sure that gets expanded over time. But you you just move forward in a very propelled manner. And in I got to the first boss, and I haven't finished it yet, but it's the it's all about these puzzles where you hit an item that's a start point and the item moves and you have to traverse the environment to get to that next point before the timer runs out and hit it again and then it goes on to another one. That's this kind of thing, but it's very fast, it's very smooth, um, and that gives it a, a sense of, of tension that is very, very enjoyable. Um, I have not gone very far at all, but I definitely do want to play more of this, and it's on Game Pass for people who have that. If you want to check it out, I would recommend just installing that and checking it out. It is neat, and it is stylishly bright. It's a little so visually powerful that I decided not to try and play it on the stream mm-hmm. because it's just it's a lot of color, and it moves very quickly, and it could be disorienting, I think, to someone just watching it. Um, it was disorienting mm-hmm. to me playing it, um, but beautiful. And uh, yeah, I 
so that's neat. But that's all I've played this week. Um, other than that, I just painted miniatures. And um, maybe I'll talk about that some other time. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've played a bunch of small little things this week. Um, probably the most interesting one of the ones i played this week is... Uh, I've been playing a bunch of F-099. Oh, this is the Battle Royale um, F-Zero yeah. game. Yeah. I had one race of that and I've not picked it up again. Yeah, so yeah. Here's, here's the thing. For anyone who doesn't know what this is, this is the Super Nintendo F-Zero, but there's 99 races in a race. Go. And initially, I found this, like, pretty fucking overwhelming, because the thing about this is, is that it is a racing game that, like, the, the whole thing about F-Zero is that your boost meter is your health, and if you run out of health, your car explodes and you don't make it through the race, and you're having to sort of balance how often you boost your vehicle versus how much you can um, get bump into corners of the track and not die. And that dynamic plays very differently when you are in a pack of 99 racers bumper-carring you around. It very much changes your relationship with that, that boost-slash-health meter to one where you're like, I know that I, in a solo race, could do another boost here and have enough health to get around the track. In the chaos that's going on here, maybe I keep a little extra health on hand. Initially, I wasn't sure about this game, and it took a couple of races for it to really click with me, um, and for me to start enjoying it. And I think the things that work for me about it are, there are mechanics in place for helping you get further ahead in the pack if you're a little further back. Um, if you crash into other vehicles and like do a little spin attack, you can fill up a meter that will let you briefly fly on a track in the air where no one else can crash into you, and you can take little shortcuts and sort of catch up the pack a bit. Um, but much more, much more like the thing that I think has kept me playing is you're not just trying to come first place because if you were, I don't think I'd be enjoying this, but every time you start a race, you are, you are randomly given four other players who are your rivals and you get much more point rewards, uh, you know, in terms of like progressing through the ranks for beating your rivals than you do for first place. You are ultimately going like, look, first place would be great, but even if you don't get first place, just beat these four fuckers, uh, who are roughly your skill level. And uh, that might come in the form of like getting over the finish line of the end of the final lap faster than them. It might just be, don't explode and they exploded, that gets you there. Um, and that can sometimes incentivize a little bit the... Even if I come in not a great position, if I still finish the four laps, I'm probably going to get rewarded because I survived and at least one of my rivals didn't. Um, and that's been kind of fun. Um, the thing that you sort of unlock once you do like a few more of these races is you start unlocking uh, sort of little Grand Prix tournaments where rather than just doing one race, you are doing multiple back-to-back -back races. And I think that's where this really starts coming together, is that... Uh, you know how in, like, your Fortnite or something, you've got the uh, the storm that's shrinking in and it's getting smaller and smaller? Here they do that with uh, each lap over multiple races. So you start with 99 people, uh, end of that first lap of the first uh, track, maybe the first 90 people are going to get through. Then maybe the first 85. And on any given lap, you don't have to come first, you just have to not be in that bottom percentage. You have to stay alive, unexploded, and not in the, the bottom 20%, maybe. 
And then, you know, by by the end, if you if you want to get to like the fifth race in that little Grand Prix, you've got to be in the top 20 people from that starting 100. And that sort of gradual, you don't have to be in first place right now. You just have to be this far above the bottom position works really well. Um, and it means that as you get further into those Grand Prix, there are fewer and fewer drivers and it becomes more and more traditional left zero with less and less of that chaos. So that when you're like, look, I'm I'm on my f- fifth race of five in this Grand Prix, um, you have a lot less of that like chaos risking knocking you out and you can go, now it's just down to me. And I, I've really enjoyed it. I don't know how long I'm going to stick with playing it, but it is initially incredibly overwhelming and didn't immediately make sense to me. But the more of it I've played, the more I've gone, this is a battle royale where you can, you can just incrementally keep yourself a little bit above last place. Just like not quite the worst person in a shrinking, shrinking group. And that's kind of a neat, interesting mechanic. Um, I'm enjoying it more than I expected to. I'll give it another go. I'll give it another go. I um, <clears throat> I went through the tutorials, got halfway through a race, and then just sort of got bored and stopped. But I didn't, like, delete it or anything. So hmm. I just don't think maybe I wasn't just, like, in the right frame of mind for it. Um, so I'll I'll maybe give it a go again. It took me a couple of races to to get the feel for like how this wanted to be played, but I am enjoying it more and more the more time I put into it. Um, what about you, Steph? What you been playing this week? Right. Well, I've been on a bit of a puppet combo kick. Um, I talked last week about Knights at the Gates of Hell, um, which I'm not sure if I made it clear enough last week that. Puppet Combo published that, and even though it's got a lot of stylistic similarities, it's not a Puppet Combo developed game. Um, it's developed by um, two creators known as Black Eyed Priest and Henry Hoare. And other than that, like very similar stylistically to games like Nun Massacre or Don't Go in the House or, or any other number of those bizarre. 80s style um sort of 80s b-movie playstation one sensory nightmare horror games but anyway played night at the gates of hell last week loved it really got got the sort of wind under my sails to go and try out as many of them as i could so i went back and tried nun massacre again um got about as far as i did last time i I really don't like that one. Um, you're just running around a house being chased by a, a spooky nun that shrieks at you with a really just off-putting noise while trying to just, like, find items um, and essentially scavenger hunting, uh, which I'm not fond of scavenger hunt horror games to begin with. So that was Nun Massacre. I played to completion a game called uh, No One Lives Under the Lighthouse, which is neither Puppet Combo developed or uh, developed by Black Eyed Priest and Henry Hoare. It was a a different outfit, but published under Puppet Combo's Torture Star video label. Um, Still very similar in presentation. First person, horror, PlayStation 1 era visuals um, with, like, 
over overworn VHS filters if you want them. Um, this one was way more of a... There was a lot of walking sim elements to this one. Um, there were some chase sequences and one scavenger hunt section towards the end. But mostly it was waking up every day um, on this little island and maintaining a lighthouse. You wake up, you go to the lighthouse, you make sure that you you, re- you fill the light with gas and then crank it so that it spins round. And on each day, there's something getting in the way of that. You know, something might be broken that needs fixing or, or there might be some mess that needs cleaning up. And spooky shit happens. You know, the first time it really properly turns is one night you turn the lighthouse on and then in the big lighthouse dome at the top, giant moths just start slamming against the glass and swarming it and until it's completely covered and then the glass starts to crack before they all disappear. And that bit was really cool. Um, and it's it was fascinating. Like, I was kind of hooked just by the 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 loop of it and the real sort of um, effective sense of... of lonely um, task completion that it had going for it. Unfortunately, it just devolves at the end. It just starts suddenly switching into all sorts of different perspectives of here's the old lighthouse keeper and what they did, and here's some mystery person doing, like, presumably human sacrifice shit. At one point, you get put into the perspective of the monster that was chasing you earlier, and it just flits from place to place, seems to go back in time at some point, and, and it's rapid fire to the point where about 30 minutes before the credits hit, I realised what kind of ending I was going to get. And you know mm. those... You see it a lot in horror games, but you see it in other indie games too, where it's like... At some point, this game is just going to suddenly stop. It won't end. It will stop. And I'll be sat there looking at very quiet, blank, plain credits, scrolling, feeling incredibly unfulfilled. I'm sure we've each played like a dozen games that don't end. They just abruptly stop and leave you completely fucking wanting and i knew i was gonna get it and i'd been so fascinated by that game like on and off i'd been i played it in like all throughout a whole day um when i had other things to do like i was i was properly glued to it and uh just sort of felt let down by the end um nothing it was doing was especially bad it's just after so much effective slow atmospheric build this sudden deluge of here's some weird shit. It it was it just completely ruined itself, and and it's it's a shame because there's a lot about that game that I admire. Um, then I played Bloodwash, and Bloodwash, Bloodwash. Now this one is an earlier game by. Black Eyed Priest and Henry Hoare, the folks that did Night at the Gates of Hell, the one I really liked. And I think it's demonstrated to me that when it comes to these games, these 
PSX slash B-movie splatter games that are coming out, those two devs are nailing it. They are doing what I have been trying to get from these puppet combo games, where I really love the style and I'm fascinated by them, but something about them is just mechanically um, impenetrable. Having played Night at the Gates of Hell and the Booty Creek Cheek Freak and <laughs> Bloodwash now, anything these two devs make, their next one is Sniper Killer. Uh, that's coming out next year. But anything these devs make, I'm going to check out. Because Bloodwash is not as good as, as Night at the Gates of Hell. But it sure is something. It sure is something. Um, I'll give you... Uh, just a bit of an idea as, as to the kind of game it is. The um, serial killer that serves at the antagonist is called the Womb Ripper. Ah, <laughs> uh-huh. the Womb Ripper, okay. and you are you play a, a pregnant woman uh, called Sarah, who's a deadbeat boyfriend, who it turns out is the um, misogynistic prick at the beginning of Nights at the Gates of Hell. Um. And Sniper Killer is having, like, they're, they're doing this thing where all these games are, like, ostensibly different, but have some sort of shared sort of interconnectivity, um, which I really enjoy. Um, so, yeah, her deadbeat boyfriend um, hasn't bothered to clean her clothes, and she's got a job interview, so she's got to take her clothes to a laundromat, a late-night laundromat on the outskirts of town. Um, when she's there, a lot of this game is built. You spend a lot of it just at this little, like, retail park where there's the laundromat and a couple of shops that are open late at night. There's an appliance store, a pawn shop, um, a pizza place. And you just sort of talk to the characters that are there. You Once you put the laundry into to wash, there's a real-world timer and your clothes will be ready after a certain amount of time. And you just fill time until then. And while you're doing that, you can explore and get little bits of backstory to sort of fill in what's going on and why the old laundromat burnt down and what might be going on with this womb ripper. And then inevitably, you know, shit happens. There's stabbing. There's a nude, like, psycho killer kind of character. Um and then there's uh, some really, really fucking visually grim shit that very much like Night at the Gates of Hell is impressive in that it's all low poly and deliberately shitty graphics, yet somehow they have made them like vis- viscerally distressing. Like some of the grossest visuals i've ever seen in a game and we are talking ps1 style graphics and yet they're doing something with them that is evoking it's doing just enough to evoke a real sort of just stomach churning disgust from me um and i mean that as a as a like big compliment um the sort of final confrontation is a bit meh yeah, sort of 
fighting the womb ripper as it runs at you and screams really loud um while you just sort of shoot at it um but as a little short horror game that very much like the one i talked about last week is there there are so many games now in this style and yet i can point at each one and say there's no game like it that mm. is impressive. You look at a screenshot side by side of Bloodwash and Night of the Gates of Hell, you could be forgiven for thinking it's the same game. And yet, having played both of them, I could describe both of them as saying there's nothing like it. Um, yeah, just absolutely pleased with it. Um, these games are out... Like they come to PC first, um, but they've been making their way to consoles, so you can get Bloodwash, Gates of Hell, and a bunch of Puppet Combo ones on, um, you know, PS5, uh, Xbox, uh, and the Switch. Um, and like I said in my review of Night at the Gates of Hell, my praise is very conditional. I gave Night at the Gates of Hell an eight out of ten. That is. For a very particular clientele. There are people that will hate... As I, Again, just to crib what I said in the review. There are people that are going to hate these games. And they're right to. <laughs> they're not wrong to hate them. They are right to hate them. But I am very much enjoying being wrong. All I'm hearing is that these games, you think these games are good and Starfield is trash. That's all I'm hearing. And and it's, and it's you know, equal footing for the two. <laughs> Confirmed. Confirmed better than Starfield. Blood, I mean, you know, we make fun of the people that do these direct contrasts and comparisons, which obviously happened when I published my, mm-hmm. both my Lies of P review and my Gates of, of Hell review. But Bloodwash is way better than Starfield. <laughs> Way less dated graphics as well. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I I am all about these games right now. These video game nasties are like the the only way I could sort of collectively describe mm. them to sort of allude to what their inspirations used to be disparagingly called in the eighties. Even the ones I don't like, I respect, and I. Kind of want to check out every single one. There's a couple still on the market that I haven't looked at. I might not try all of the Massacre ones, because they all ostensibly seem to genuinely be the same thing. Um, but there's, I think Murder House is, is one I haven't tried yet. There's one way more traditionally survival horror-y type game um, that's out on the Switch. I think it was the first one Public Combo put on consoles. So I've still got to try that. But yeah, my picks are... If you're looking for just some proper, like, B-movie-inspired retro horror games, and we are talking, you know, like, Lucio Fulci kind of stuff, definitely Black Eyed Priest and Henry Horde. I am loving what those folks are, are putting out there. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. didn't mean to linger that long on all no. of that, but no, I, I am no, very bad. fascinated by what's happening in that space. Yeah. Um, I've not played that much else this week. I've played a couple of little things, but I have very little to say about these. I can rifle through them pretty quickly. Uh, Trombone Champ 
is on Switch now. Mm. And the the only reason I bring this up is because it is the only not Nintendo first party game I am aware of that makes use of the fucking IR sensor camera on the Joy-Con. Um you can hold your Joy-Con uh and move your hand closer to it and further away from it to play the trombone as if you're playing a trombone and bless them. It it is wonky and janky and exactly how you should play Trombone Champ. Like Oh, yeah, you could play it on PC where you have a mouse and you can be vaguely halfway accurate with what you're doing. No. Play this in four-player local co-op with everyone, like, moving their hands closer and further away from IR cameras on their Switch. This game is meant to be played in a way that is, like, a little janky and a little wonky, and I do genuinely love this stupid control scheme. It is not accurate, but that's part of the charm. Um... Other than that, I finished the um, Teal Mask DLC for Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. Um, it's 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 a handful more Pokemon. It's an excuse for me to get back in and shiny hunt some stuff that wasn't yet shiny huntable in any of the other Switch content. I like some of the new Pokemon that have been introduced. They fill some interesting um, spaces in the competitive um, metagame, which is nice. Um, not super lengthy, but it's nice to have a new area to explore and... I genuinely kind of like some of the stuff they do with it narratively without getting too into spoilers. They set up what seemed to be some very predictable, I feel like I understand this character very thoroughly, and some some smart inverting of character narratives. I was pleasantly surprised, if uh, even if the narrative was a little forced by I wish I could just have a fucking conversation, uh, it was a little bit of a driver for that narrative, but had fun with more Pokemon to play, nothing particularly groundbreaking. And the last one I'll very quickly um, skim through is I've started playing the Switch port of Gloomhaven, uh, which is a ridiculous board game. Yeah, that's that one is like enormous and the sort of thing that I look at and say, I don't have a weekend for that. I got into Gloomhaven with a sort of much smaller version of that game called Jaws of the Lion, mm. um, which even then was like most of a year for me and a group of friends to play through. Yeah. Um, and we have started playing like the board game sequel Frosthaven, which is absolutely big, huge. This is going to be years of our life campaign. And it's just it's nice to have a, a board game that like every now and then we'll just set up at, like a, a three day bank holiday weekend and just hardcore dungeon crawl and it's been pretty fun like i'm not usually someone that enjoys the there is there is a narrative but it's fairly minimal this is largely you sat here crunching the numbers and working out how to move your little miniatures around hex grids to fight enemies i mean i'd rather that than how a lot of groups play D D, which is just that but they call it D D. I mean you know this is the explicit purpose of dungeon crawling well, this is the thing is like I what I've realized is is for a long time I said I didn't like dungeon crawling combat and that is because my experience with it was earlier editions of D&D where you would be tr doing your role playing and your narrative and it would be like cool we we stumbled upon some bandits time for the next 4 hours mm -hmm. to be meticulous combat mm -hmm. and like I I worked out what I don't enjoy is stopping a largely roleplay centric thing to play a completely different, very dry game and then come back to roleplay. Right, there's nothing wrong with those mechanics or that type of gameplay. It's just it, it, the 
dissonance from the other activity that you were invested in doing. Yeah, I'm with you. If you invert the order so that it's like, cool, this one little dungeon run is going to be like three to four hours of us fighting this dungeon and we get five minutes of story at the end. Cool. But I know what I'm getting in for that. Mm -hmm. So I've never played the original like main campaign Gloomhaven and I know I don't, I don't have time in my life to find another group to play that with while playing Frosthaven. So I'm like, yeah, let's pick up the, the video game adaptation and maybe chip away at it over time. It's on other uh, console platforms. I picked it up on Switch because it's a game I want to be chipping away at as a second screen experience while doing other things. The Switch port is fine. It's a little it's it's a little low res and occasionally has a bit of loading times and chugs a little bit, but it it's not so bad that, like, I regret picking it up on this platform. It's still worthwhile to have done so. That being said, um, this is not a good introduction to Gloomhaven. Um, because as someone who's played through Jaws of the Lion, played through Frosthaven, I was a bit fucking overwhelmed by this game. Because this game doesn't treat you like you're playing a video game. It's like, hey, you know the board game, go. There's a lot of things that I appreciate being automated and me not having to manually sit and do my numbers stuff I'd be doing if it was a board game. But it's, um, I don't know how to put this. The video game adaptation of Gloomhaven requires you to do uh, steps and processes that seem obvious and inherent. And it sort of slows up the pacing a bit. So I'm trying to think of a good example. Let's say I have a movement action that can move me up to four spaces and I pick... I want to move to this hex, three hexes away. I I have to click the hex to select it, then hold down A to confirm that's the one I want to move to. I move to there, then I have to press X to say I'm happy to not use any more of my movement. Like, you have to, like, that's three presses for what should have been, click there, go. And there's a lot of little things like this where you have to just, like, confirm a thing way more times than feels natural, which doesn't help this is an introduction if you're not already invested in its mechanics. For anyone who doesn't know, it's a dungeon crawler. The gimmick to it is you have a hand of cards that your character can use. Each has a top half and a bottom half. Every turn you pick one top half action, one bottom half action. I think its core mechanics work well as a as a video game, but it doesn't do a great job of not just scaring you off of Gloomhaven as an overall property because it is a... It's based on a board game that kind of wants to kick your ass. And it doesn't do a great job of explaining itself before it starts kicking your ass. Uh, so that's that's Gloomhaven on Switch. I'm st I'm sticking with it, but I do not blame anyone who picks that up and goes, "This made me not want to play anymore." Uh, what about you, Steph? You played anything else this week? Uh, I did play one more, one more thing yeah. of note. Um, oh, I've got a review coming up for it. Mm -hmm. Is this the thing with the the the? The tutorial screen. Yes, the thing with the tutorial yeah. screen. Um, yeah. yeah, this game starts with um, just an overwhelming info dump as text and arrows are like thrown across the screen with no organization, just pointing at fairly basic, straightforward HUD elements telling you what they are. But it's just such an immediately repellent screen that only does one thing um, of value as a tutorial, which is to demonstrate exactly what an ill-conceived mess of a game is about to occur. Um, Mythforce is a first-person dungeon crawly, roguelite-y thing. Um, it got my attention because it 
presents itself as inspired by Saturday morning cartoons of like the eighties and that. Um, it's got a theme tune that's sort of very much of that era. Um, it's trying to resemble aesthetically masters of the universe and stuff like that. And by that, I mean, there are maybe two sound effects that sound a bit like they're from a He-Man cartoon and some really, really bargain basement cell shading. That's about it. Um, there's no like cheesy voice acting, like even the villains sound bored. One thing that like put me off and it, it, it's a silly thing that won't matter to most people, but the amount of times death gets referenced when I'm here remembering a time when these merch driven cartoons were so averse to actual violence. The only punch he man ever throws in that show is the one where he sends his fist flying at the camera because all other combat is him grappling guys and throwing them because he couldn't punch them because violence like that just wouldn't be in a cartoon to say nothing of frequent mentions of death and dying and killing and that to me is just like just serves as as an example of just how fucking inauthentic and insincere this game is if you showed me any screenshot of the actual game and just told me it was a generic fantasy rpg setting i'd believe you there's nothing about it other than the cell shading that even limps towards it being a cartoon. Well, that and one of the bosses is like just a straight ripoff of Beast Man. Doesn't sound anything like him, just sounds like Anne Bloke. It's an incredibly mediocre game made all the worse by the fact that, as I said in the review that I've drafted, I'd argue that A Tin of Vienna Sausages is a better optimised game than Myth Force. It is so fucking shoddy. I don't know if I've ever done this before with a game, but when I booted this game up for the very first time, I closed and restarted it because I was convinced it had crashed on the corporate splash screen. It didn't. It just takes so long to load that you go past thinking it's a long loading time and think it broke. And that's just to get to the main menu. To say nothing of the the way it struggles once you actually get into a game. Like, it is so clunky and the frame rate is more of a... The game took that under advisement. It didn't try to actually implement a consistent one. Um, On the Switch especially, it is... I wouldn't say it's unplayable. It is playable. um, But in a way that's worse. Because I'd rather not play it. It, I, I'll give you an example as to just like like the level of incompetence in in terms of this game's actual design. The character presented as the easiest character, like they've got like little difficulty ratings of of you know how hard they are to use. Victoria, the leader of the Myth Force, simple sort of mace and shield, bashy bashy, hacky slashy. Her abilities sort of hinge on her main one, which is a forward charge. Can't be steered, and it covers quite a bit of distance. She just launches forward and knocks down enemies in the way. That's fair enough. Mythforce decided that every single room of every single map should be filled haphazardly and almost randomly, and in huge numbers... With exploding plants, poison poles, flamethrowers spouting out the walls, and and uh, 
what's it like death holes just like like spike pits these rooms are quite small and the starter character's main skill launches her forward in an uncontrollable long line mm-hmm. like i'm not weird for thinking like there's something wrong with that like you could from my description you could hazard a guess as to what happens right when you have a long uncontrollable charge attack in a room full of explosions and hulls in conclusion three out of ten (laughs) goodness gracious right now's the time should we get onto the news Mm because my goodness this week um it's been pretty hard to miss but um microsoft uh, and xbox fucked up this week pretty royally we got confirmation that this was a an xbox specific fuck up but what happened was a huge number of unredacted documents detailing the next decade of xbox's um gaming plans were uploaded to the ftc website publicly visible, and completely unredacted. Smooth. Yeah. We have a statement from the FTC where they are very adamant this was not their fuck-up, that someone at Xbox fucked up. The FTC says, The FTC was not responsible for uploading Microsoft's plans for its games and consoles to the court website. It's a pretty big fucking situation. So we could go into, like, some specifics. There's a lot of interesting stories that have come out of this. Um, But to give, like, an overview picture of how big a fuck-up this is, we know um, when Xbox expects the next generation of hardware to be, what their overall big-picture plans for their next-generation console look like. We know about the mid-console redesigns of the Xbox Series X and Series S that are coming. Um, We'll get to those in a minute because there's some stuff about them phasing out disk drives. We've seen photos of those new redesigns. We've seen photos of controllers that are coming out. We have seen hardware design plans for possibly a handheld, for uh, new controller types, for upcoming unannounced games. We have seen huge numbers of internal company emails, some of which are a little damaging because they are executive talking a lot more openly than they would if the people they were talking about were in the room. The list kind of just goes on and on and on. There's no good place to start with this, but it is one of the biggest leaks that we have ever seen in terms of, like, sheer scope and detail of, like, upcoming plans for a company. We'll start by talking about those, um revised Xbox Series S and Series X consoles. We're expecting, like, middle to late next year, slightly redesigned versions of the Xbox Series X and Series S. There's some stuff that they're trying to pitch on, like, modernizing technology and making them more sustainable, but I think the big headline about them is both of these redesigned Xbox consoles do not come with a disk drive. And if this is still the plan and nothing has changed since these plans uh, were created. These allegedly are about a year out of date. And if these happen to like replace the current models of Xbox Series consoles that are available, they will not be selling an Xbox that has a disk drive. And that is, I think, sooner than a lot of people anticipated that move. Now, there's every possibility that they will you know, suggest selling a standalone separate disk drive if you want to have it as an add-on. 
But it really does seem like, at least when these plans were made, Xbox does want to make that push towards not selling you physical games anymore. Well, didn't they want to do that with the Xbox One? As a lot of people have pointed out, yes, they did, and people pushed back against it, and it seems like they're making another push for that. Yeah. They're, they're giving it another shot. No, it, uh, which... it's, it's meaningful to them. The The cost reduction... I mean, you know, those drives aren't the most expensive piece of hardware, but they are an expense, and they are a moving part. And the fewer moving yeah. parts you can have on these things, the more reliable they're likely to be. I can see a lot of reasons why Microsoft would very much want to take that route. And and it's not completely without consumer benefit. I think that the cost outweighs the risk because it shouldn't be my problem as a consumer if the, you know, disk drive, if the shoddy disk drive that they installed in the machine fails within warranty. But... Well, there's there's a couple of things here for like the consumer angle of this. Um, first of all, it's worth noting the new revised Series X model uh, would cost the same price as the current Xbox Series X. Well, so you'd be paying the same price to no longer have the option of a disc drive. That's unsurprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's not it's not surprising, but this is a situation where if you are looking at picking up an Xbox Series X, that might be a reason to pick up the current model. Oh, that yeah, that for sure. I'm already shopping. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people talking about this, and, like, if Microsoft want to avoid the messaging that they are phasing out physical media, they have a limited time to get on top of that narrative now. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they want to make that move, because with Game Pass being such a big focus of their business, and we'll get to that in some of these other stories, they want you to be downloading games off Game Pass, not buying physical games. And this is one step that pushes them a little further along that road. Other things that came out of this, we got some information about a new Xbox controller that will probably be launching next year around these new refreshes. Um, The main differences are um, one of the functionalities for this new controller they're advertising is direct to cloud, which is the technology that Stadia was using with their controllers to have you connect your controller straight to your router to reduce input latency when playing Stadia games. This seems to suggest that Xbox wants that ability to reduce latency to continue pushing towards more cloud-based gaming, where you don't have the game yourself on your own hardware, you're playing it over the internet. Interesting to me was that they also are adding in an accelerometer. PlayStation and Nintendo's consoles already have the ability to sense motion controls, Interestingly, I had a conversation with Xbox about this at Gamescom, about the pros and cons accessibility-wise of introducing an accelerometer, because there are some people who benefit from, like, you know, your Splatoon style, I'm going to tilt my controller to help do my aiming. But right now, the Xbox Adaptive Controller can emulate every function of an Xbox controller, and an accelerometer would introduce an element that, like, games might take use of that players with the Adaptive Controller could not engage with. And that is a thing I'm sort of watching out for. They do advertise repair and disassembly uh, as a key feature of it, which is unsurprising because the EU has started pushing for that needs to be a feature in technology. Next-gen systems, we're looking at like 2028. 
the next-gen Xbox wants to be doing a bunch of stuff. They they want to do what they were promising with fucking Crackdown 3, where they're using the power of the cloud to do some of your com- computational power on your console. There's an email that suggests that at one point they were looking at next-gen Xbox having a crypto wallet built into it. Uh, I suspect that plan has probably <laughs> changed somewhat. Yeah, that one's probably <laughs> not stuck around. Um... But a lot of this like next-gen console for 2028 discussion does seem to center around the fact that some games might need to be played always online to do the Crackdown 3 promise of mm-hmm. we are remotely handling some of the data processing. It's the direction that Microsoft has wanted to go for a while and keeps trying, and they're making the gamble that five years from now that'll be more doable. Oh, what else is in there? Sorry, there's a lot of stuff in here. Xbox head Phil Spencer really, 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 really wants to buy Nintendo. We know this because of an internal email from 2020 in which uh, he was discussing uh, companies that Xbox should try and acquire. And um, some of the stuff in this email is fucking, it's fucking bonkers. Let me read the quotes. Phil Spencer described Nintendo as the prime asset for possible Microsoft acquisitions. He says, if any US company would have a chance for Nintendo, we're probably in the best position. Although he notes, Nintendo's sitting on a big pile of cash, which would make acquisition difficult. He does discuss the idea of a hostile takeover. I don't think a hostile action would be a good move. We're playing the long game. Which is in reference to the fact that, as far as Phil Spencer is concerned, Nintendo is ultimately at some point eventually going to fail to stay in the hardware business and... Phil Spencer wants to be there to swoop up Nintendo when that moment comes. He is looking at the big picture, and the big picture is, uh, as he puts it, it's taking a long time for Nintendo to see that their future exists off of their own hardware. What is he fucking talking about? There are periods in history where you could have said that. There, There are periods of history where I have said that before, where I'm looking at the market and thinking... You know what? Nintendo might do well to just shut up shop when it comes to hardware and just focus on the games. But they always come back around. And right now, with the Switch, like, selling gangbusters, to say their future isn't on hardware now is, like, maybe, like, after the Wii U had just come out, like... I think there's a distinction in what he said there in in the last quote was on their own hardware, which is to say... He's expecting Nintendo properties to go to other platforms eventually because the industry has grown at such scale that to leave behind all of the money that could come from putting their properties out on other platforms is going to be the inevitable course that Nintendo takes, which is... I mean, first of all, they're doing a ton of mobile stuff. Yeah. That that is interesting, though, considering if Microsoft bought it. They just make all of Nintendo's games, like, Xbox, like, Game Pass exclusive. Well, that's, that's just it. Like, it's not that Nintendo isn't interested mm. in being on hardware other than their own. They're just not interested in yours, yeah. Phil. Yeah. The thing is, is that if I know two things about Nintendo, it's that they want their games on their own hardware because they are, like, fiercely invested in we want to make weird tech that lets us make specific games we want to make. They want that flexibility to go, we have a game idea, We want. I'm going to make hardware yes. specifically to be able to make that weird game. 
The thing that to me says Nintendo would never agree to be bought out by Microsoft, at least not any time in the foreseeable future, is look at fucking Labo. Look at the Mario Kart VR game uh, that exists where you play a Mario... There's, there's a physical go-kart in your house that has a camera on it that's doing Mario Kart in, like, AR. Shit like that is not the kind of thing that Nintendo wants to worry about whether a more traditional company will let them play around with. Also of note, it's really funny looking at the timing of this email, because you want to know when this email was sent? Specifically, it was like two weeks after Animal Crossing came out on the Switch during the pandemic. <laughs> and mm. like the Switch was like impossible get to get down. a hold of because everyone was like, oh my god, I feel so isolated. Here's a nice little wholesome thing where I can connect with my friends. It was the the peak of the Switch being like impossibly well selling. And Phil Spencer's here like, yeah, I reckon eventually they're going to run out of money. We'll get them. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, um... <laughs> like, that, that's Phil Spencer's this is very good for Bitcoin moment. <laughs> right yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so we also got some insight in planned upcoming video games that were in the works in 2020, and we'll see whether they pan out. There was a new Doom and a new Dishonored game in development, um... The new Dishonored was going to be made by Arcane. Like, once Redfall was out the way, the plan was for them to move back to Dishonored and make presumably Dishonored 3, it seems like. Fallout 3 remaster is coming, and Oblivion remaster is coming. Uh, at some point, they were planning on making a Ghostwire Tokyo sequel. Unclear if that's still going. Um, yeah, this is... We're not even, like, halfway into all the shit that leaked. Um... If you if you are interested in like behind the scenes on like development, uh like the conversations between executives, this stuff is fascinating to read. Um we have insights on like the kind of money that Microsoft throws around for Game Pass, um Game Pass access for games. Um one of the funniest things to have come out of that is um at some point, there was discussion of bringing Baldur's Gate 3 to Xbox and having it day and day on Game Pass, which would have cost, according to Xbox's estimates, about $5 million, uh, compared to the $300 million they paid to get uh, Jedi Fallen Order, I think it was, on Game Pass. Let's just take a moment to remember that um, earlier this year, Microsoft had a big round of layoffs to save money. Yeah, Let's just remember that yeah. bit, just at this particular juncture. I need to find the quote of uh, why Xbox didn't push to get Baldur's Gate 3 on Game Pass, because it's fucking hilarious in hindsight. When it comes out and they fail, we can just buy Larian? Is that what he no, predicted? No, no, not quite. Uh, so I'm reading, reading from Game Rant. Microsoft really misjudged the potential of Baldur's Gate 3, according to leaked documents from the Microsoft FTC trial, calling it a second-run Stadia PC RPG. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh god, yep. Phil Spencer, uh, you can wear as many fucking graphic design video game t-shirts as you like, son. You yeah. are not knowledgeable about the industry you failed your way upwards into like every single executive of your stripe. Yeah. But if you go looking, like you can read entire documents now of like uh games they were looking to put on Game Pass what the expected like amount of money they'd have to spend for them was, the pros and cons of bringing specific games across. 
some of the stuff is interesting. Like, I'm having a look at uh, Lego Star Wars. They were looking about $35 million to put that on Game Pass. The thing that's interesting about this is the PC version of the game wasn't quite ready, and this is why they seemingly ultimately didn't go for it in the end for day and date. But reading from their, their notes, PC tech readiness timing is questionable. Negative crunch culture press will make them not want to push teams unreasonably. So you get some little insights into, like, the degree to which, like, presence of, like, crunch is negatively perceived impacting decisions about Game Pass games. There's a lot of really interesting, like, insights if you want to dig into reading all these documents. But yeah, um, probably the most interesting thing about Game Pass to have come out of this is, um, it seems like between January 2022 and October of 2022 there was basically zero Game Pass subscriber growth. Yikes. And that is um, in no small part due to the fact that Starfield got delayed a year. That was their big sell that they had been planning on for Game Pass for that year as their big AAA thing, and it fell through. And then you get into a bunch of really interesting emails of like executives panicking trying to find something big for Game Pass to fill that gap. There was conversations around trying to capitalise on Elden Ring's success by getting the Dark Souls trilogy onto Game Pass. That never worked out. But, like, it's really interesting, like, getting a very, like, deep-in-the-weeds look at the the mechanics of what has gone on the last couple of years within Microsoft. Um... We're almost done, I think, in terms of, like, the, the whistle-stop uh, tour of all these things. Uh, let me just double-check. Uh, despite the um, Microsoft telling the FTC they weren't sure what platforms Elder Scrolls Six was going to be on yet, nah, it's going to be an Xbox exclusive. My Xbox knows that. They have documents in which they admit that that's the case. That's That's the bulk of the big stuff. If you listen to Phil Spencer... He claims that um, this stuff is out of date and like don't don't even worry about it. We oh everything's changed since then. Don't even don't even we've got surprises still. Don't worry, we've still got surprises. We've you know leaked everything. It's fine. This is all out of date information anyway. Please don't go and read it. It is fair to say this is kind of unprecedented in how much information is out there. It's fucking wild. I do think that. I'm always sort of, I look at when these things happen, I mean, when these things happen, when, you know, probably nothing quite on the scale of this has ever <laughs> happened. But, you know, mm. when we get these sort of internal documents, things that are projected so many years out, and it's only like four years out, which is horrifying to think about the creeping, clawing death that, anyway, I think that while... Phil's probably lying a bit when he says, oh, God, so much has changed already. I, th I think it's true that so much would have anyway. Like, these forward-looking yeah. documents more than a year in advance of, of anything, um, yeah. it, it's hard to get too uh, excited because they're all still faffing off at that point. 
Yeah, like, the the big example of, like, how much things change is some of the stuff about, like, release dates and specifically the leaked list of Bethesda games. That list was from early 2020, right before the pandemic happened. And that was still projecting, like, Starfield for a 2021 release. So, like, you look at some of this stuff and go, yeah, a lot has changed in the world over the last, like, two, three years. You know, and no one can anticipate a global pandemic, you know, except for the scientists and doctors who have been predicting a global (laughs) pandemic for decades. But the expectation that these plans would have held up to the face of a pandemic would not be fair. But by the same token... Yeah, a lot changes in a year or two in this business. Yeah. When you get to the point where, like, I am looking at a 3D rendered image of next, like, the end of next year's new Xbox and a list of how they're going to try and, like, upsell it to new people... To the amount of, of detail where they're talking about, like, oh, well, well, we'll do the refresh of the S in the summer because we're trying to capitalise on this kind of audience, and then we'll get the refresh of the X out in time for, like, the big the big AAA blockbusters at the end of the year, and we're giving them this amount of uh, leeway between them. It is an unprecedented look into this shit, and as someone that, like, finds this industry interesting, like... You will never get a better chance than this, I don't think, to get an insight on what conversations a couple of years out from hardware announcements are like, and what executives speak like when they are behind closed doors. There is a lot to be learned from this. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Someone at Xbox is having a very bad day and going to get into a lot of fucking trouble. Um, I've got a couple of other things. Hey, we've got we got fuck Ubisoft news. We haven't had that in a while. Uh, we've got an excuse to talk about Ubisoft's upper management being bad and not great for the uh, average worker in their company. But I heard it was all old news now. Like, the moment a new Far Cry came out, everything was fine and fixed and, and there's never anything wrong at Ubisoft and you bringing out Upstep is the real reason why you're losing subscribers? That's what I heard. About that... Ubisoft Montreal's mandatory return to office order reportedly leaves staff in turmoil. Oh! Oh, yeah, right? Ubisoft Montreal uh, upper upper executives apparently uh, made promises to staff that uh, 100% remote work would be possible for all of its 4,000 workers, and then on September 11th this year, pulled that promise back and went, nope, all 4,000 of you need to be back in the office for a minimum of two days a week. This has caused some problems because given that they were allowed to 100% remote work, many employees made significant life decisions such as, you know, moving to places that were not commuting distance from the office uh, on an easy regular basis. Those kind of big life decisions you make based on the fact you don't have to come into the office anymore. Back in June of 2021, uh, Ubisoft announced it would be adopting a hybrid and tailored approach to work arrangements where staff would be able to balance in-office work with work from home. Um, But Ubisoft Montreal specifically kept going, we're not doing a hybrid, you can be 100% remote if you want. Like, you can rely on us on this. Assuming you meet the criteria to be approved for remote work, you can just do that long term. And their things were like productivity and impact on team. Certain jobs weren't eligible, but most staff were told, like, hey, you can just work 100% remote. 
This all changed in August when Ubisoft Montreal leadership met with team managers, insisting that all employees must return to the office for a minimum of two days a week, with no exceptions. The only leeway would be an eight-week allowance for any employee that could prove they needed time to adjust. So if you need to move house to move back near to your offices, you got you got eight weeks. That's some some leeway. You got eight weeks to to move back over here. Wow. According to um, images posted to Ubisoft's intranet, as seen by IGN, the response to the announcement was almost all negative, with some employees angry at the policy U-turn after, for example, buying a house or making other commitments based on the belief that full-time working from home would be possible, while others raised health concerns and even issues surrounding the state of the office. Some of those workers involved are immunocompromised and uh, were told, no no exceptions, you've got to work at least two days a week in the office again. So yeah, Ubisoft staff are not happy about this and feel absolutely let down by upper management not uh, being respectful and not keeping their promises about, you know, their working conditions. <sighs> this is the same Ubisoft that, like, promised it would make, like, all sorts of company changes um, to make employees feel safer there, and then just didn't. It's the same company, right? Yeah, same company. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, just just checking, just checking. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of employees from Ubisoft are potentially talking about having to quit their jobs because they took jobs here on certain understandings and now that's being sort of pulled out from under them and that's forcing them to uh, not be able to work there. Um, IGN notes that... um, Another person noted that Ubisoft leaders appear to be delegating responsibility managing employee frustration to middle managers, who seem largely powerless to address the anger. So the upper management isn't even dealing with it directly. They're getting middle managers who can't change this decision to have to face the brunt of the employees impacted. It's kind of shitty. Just a little shitty. That's a lot shitty. Yes. I mean, that's, it's... <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot shitty. Um. Wow, and they, and they want to, they want to sell themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Oh, um, uh, see, so yeah, that's a uh, reminder. The issues at Ubisoft have not gone away. Uh, upper management still do not have the average worker in that company's best interests at heart, and will fuck them over as soon as it suits upper management's whims. Uh, lastly, we've got a couple of updates on that Unity story from last week. Funnily enough, and I'm honestly kind of surprised about this, they have not 100% U-turned yet. I really thought the amount of backlash that's going on they would do. Um, but here's here's what's happened since last week's podquisition. Unity closed their offices uh, last week over a potential threat uh, that was sort of... The way it was presented to the public was that there was a, a death threat externally being directed at Unity. In uh, Turns out an unhappy employee may have said something angry to the company and it was definitely, like, led... Unity was very creative in their wording to just, like, you know, make it sound plausibly like this might be internet gamers bullying us were very sad. When God gives you an employee threat, make lemonade. Yeah. That's what I say. 
Yeah. Like, it's obviously fucking pathetic that they did that. Obviously, we just want to stress that there are Unity employees that are being harassed. Yeah. Yes. I had uh, an employee at Unity reach out to me to let me know how Unity's management is essentially throwing them to the wolves. Yes. Trying to, like, cajole them, encourage them, coerce them into posting online in favour of what Unity's doing. Just so that they could get fucking dogpiled for it. I can attest I have heard the same. But yes, specifically the one that the police were called about and the officers were evacuated over was from a disgruntled employee. And honestly, I can't blame an employee if they made a a threat toward their employer. Their employer, from the sounds of it, is throwing them under the bus quite considerably. Mm -hmm. Then... We get to the story that I think is the big the big update on the Unity story, which is I'm pretty confident this is the explanation of why Unity wanted to do this whole nonsense. It seems like PC developers and console developers are not why Unity tried to introduce this per install fee. Because we got an update that uh certain mobile developers that make games using Unity Uh, but don't use Unity's own ad platform on mobile, were receiving a little offer from from, from Unity Mm -hmm. that basically said, um, hey, if you move over from, uh, you know, our competitors, um, the main competitor in this field is a company called Applovin, uh, if you move move over from our competitor and use our ad platform, we will waive 100% of the per-install fee. And this has led to a lot of people, myself included, feeling like this Unity per install fee is entirely aimed, or primarily aimed, at strong-arming, app-loving, and similar competitors out of the market so that Unity can corner mobile ad sets. That lovely, lucrative mobile market. Yeah. Uh, that was the shot. May I have the honours of, of pouring the chaser? Yeah, yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead some of the biggest mobile developers in the market (laughs) with games raking in billions of dollars are turning off their ads in protest of what Unity did. Yes, so this has not worked worked out. Um, As soon as this information came to light and other developers were like, we're not being offered a waiver. Oh, I see what they're doing. They're trying to bully a competitor out of the market. Yeah, some pretty big fucking names stopped money going to Unity in protest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seems like that's probably what's going on. Unity is like umming and ahhing about backstepping this. Well, because, yeah, this is everything. Everything's on the line yeah. now. I would be very, very yes. careful about my next step, too. Uh, well, yeah. I've said it before, this, I would choose the mobile market, too, if looking at it from a yeah. purely economic perspective of which market is going to long-term net me more profitability, mobile or everything else, it's mobile. Mm. There's too many ways to extract value from mobile devices and too many people that have them. Mm. So, continuing forward a little in the story, we did get an apology from Unity, kind of-ish. They put out a statement... I think it was Monday of this week, so it was like after there'd been an entire weekend for people to be like stewing over this. They said they were sorry for the confusion and angst that these changes had caused, and promised they would make unspecified changes to the plan. A lot of people read this, and their response was, um, oh, so we're doing the thing where you announce something really terrible, 
and then scale it back a little to what you actually wanted to do so that, that to hope that will appease people. And developers were having none of it. Mm-hmm. Developers were like, nothing short of a full U-turn will do, and even then that's probably not enough for us to trust you again. Their apology fucking says nothing. I could read you quotes from it, but it says nothing. I mean, it does um, say one thing. It, it it basically says, sorry that you were offended. I mean, that's... Because they never apologise for what they've done. They only ever do that, the old sorry you were offended routine. Oh, we're sorry for the confusion. We're sorry that you're confused. That's more or less what they've done. Pricks. I'm glad that, like... People aren't letting them get away with pushing that envelope just so that they can walk it back yeah. still ahead of where they were. Like, yeah, that needs to be caught more often than it does because the game industry loves doing that and all industries love doing that. And I'm really glad that devs are not having it this time and not budging from wanting a complete U-turn. Things are really continuing to push in that way. And we'll get to that in a second. We have, not officially, but we've heard from um, uh, Jason Schreier has uh, talked about allegedly what Unity is looking to offer as their, like, back-down offer. And we have a bit of insight into that. And again, developers do not think it goes far enough from what I've seen. But Bloomberg's report is that Unity is going to suggest that they cap these these per-install fees at 4% of a game's revenue for customers making over a million dollars and that the number of installs will be calculated based on a developer's self-reported data rather than Unity trying to do estimate methodology. So they're trying to squeeze through with, well, you tell us how many times you were installed, and like it, we're only going to take like 4% of your revenue at most f- with this new fee that you didn't agree to and got sort of forced into. Developers do not seem to be happy with that either, but that is currently... It seems like that's what they're going to try and push. We'll see whether developers calm down or whether it is still, no, we're not happy. News that reassures me that developers are still not backing down and are putting their money where their mouth is on, like, um, not being happy with this. Um, One story I saw uh, this morning was the developer of Terraria has donated over $200,000 to alternative open-source game engines Ooh. to help fund game engines that people could switch to in place of uh, Unity. Developer uh, ReLogic, or ReLogic, uh, is donating $100,000 each to... Uh, I'm trying to double-check. Uh, the Godot Engine and FNA, both of whom have been, like, very proactive about providing documentation for people making Unity projects on how to move over to their open source engines. $200,000 going to like funding open source alternative engines. Moves like this keep happening. I could list more. There's been a bunch of things like this. Developers are putting their money where their mouth is to go, Unity, if you don't back down, we're going to financially support other engines and help improve people's ability to move away from you and they say that capitalism doesn't breed competition (laughs) this is the system functioning as it's supposed to (laughs) yeah yeah um gosh um (laughs) i've got i got one last bit of news for this week and i've put it in here because 
I can't stop thinking about the headline and the way I phrased it when I read it. So I gotta, I gotta, I gotta put it to you this way now. There is one person on planet Earth outside of Nintendo that we can verifiably, legally, like, confirm has played a Nintendo Switch 2. The only person on the planet we can confirm has played a Switch 2 is Bobby Kotick. Dun, dun, dun. And I don't like knowing that. I don't like knowing that. That's not what the focus of this story was meant to be, but I fucking hate it. (laughs) I came across this because Eurogamer did a story about this, and they put Bobby Kotick's face on a Switch in rainbow colours, and I don't like... I'm going to put it in our, like, uh, little chat, because I don't like smarmy Bobby Kotick looking through a Switch 2 at me. it's, It's weird and unsettling, and I can't... I can't not know it now. Um... I really don't want to look at it, but I also don't want you to suffer no. alone. I don't no. like that. <sighs> no, no one likes Bobby Kotick looking through the, 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 the fake Switch 2. I would take a hammer to a Switch 2. If I had the only Switch 2 in the country <laughs> and I turned it on and that gurning monster was grinning up at me i would drop the switch on the floor go into the fucking hallway grab one of my size 13 boots and smash the fuck out of it for me it's the crop the crop is so perfectly aligned (laughs) to be the the edge of his hairline at the top and the bottom of his lip at the bottom so he has no chin it's just cube face in front of me the story that this is actually about and there is something vaguely interesting to learn from it is the only actual confirmation we have about the switch 2 um comes from um emails between uh, uh between activision executives um that came to light because of the ftc stuff going on that have a bunch of redactions, but there is some stuff that is visible that talks about the fact that Bobby Kotick was briefed on the Nintendo Switch 2 back in December 2022. It's interesting from a perspective of, like, putting a pin on the board of, where, like, a time we can confirm someone was looking at dev kits. But what's more interesting is uh, this confirms something I suspected when the FTC trial was going on, which was... One of the promises Activision made about, like, or Xbox made about um, the Activision Blizzard King acquisition was 10 years of Call of Duty on Nintendo hardware. And a lot of people at the time were going, yeah, but Call of Duty's not going to run on Switch. What are they on about? Is it going to be a cloud version? No. Kotick was willing to commit to 10 years of Call of Duty on Switch because he'd seen the successor and knew it was powerful enough to run Call of Duty. That's, like, the, the, the thing that's kind of interesting in there is... Of course, no one was going to commit to a decade of Call of Duty ports if they hadn't seen what the next decade-ish of hardware was going to be doing. So it's interesting from the perspective of, like, looking at promises that were made and understanding the context of them, but also, fuck you, Kotick. Why are you the only person on the planet we know has played the new Switch? I don't like that. Literally anyone else on the planet, please. Bobby Kotick's of an age where 10 years from now he might not be alive and um, the world would be a better place. Yeah. I realise that some people listening are going to find that quite a uh, tasteless thing to say. However, he's a billionaire and not a human, which is uh, why I am perfectly comfortable uh, showing my contempt for his humanity by saying that. Plus, it's true. Any, any one billionaire dies... 
the world becomes better. Per capita, people benefit. Yeah. So, uh... There you go. That's 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 all that's all the newsy stuff until next week when I don't know uh Nintendo uploads the entire uh, every game for next generation accidentally to YouTube or something. For now that's all the game news. <laughs> well, it's not all the stuff that's ever it's existed the in the stuff. world. No, it's not. And some of that stuff is stuff you have made, Laura, and maybe you could tell yes. all of the lovely uh, little kiddies listening all about it. Well, you can find all the stuff I do at Laura K. Buzz pretty much everywhere. Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, TikTok, Patreon, that's the one that pays the bills, Blue Sky, Mastodon, wherever you find people, I'm Laura K. Buzz on all those places. Um... I have an episode of Accessibility going up on YouTube this Friday that is all about a leaked patent for magnetic uh, joysticks on the likely Switch 2, uh, and talking about some accessibility positives and concerns if this patent comes to materialise. Look forward to that on Friday. Also, uh, we are within a month of it releasing now, so I'm going to start pitching it real hard. Stories of Autistic Joy. Uh, It's an anthology book that I've made, basically think gender euphoria but about autistic people's like you know internal internal stories of experiences of joy that are autism specific it's coming out on october 19th uh look forward to that it's like a month away uh what about you conrad where are you on the Uh, internet you can find me at conrad zimmerman on instagram blue sky uh that other thing that's a wasteland fuck it um, you can buy <laughs> anti-capitalist propaganda and official Jimquisition merchandise at mercenarycreative.com. Uh, go check out Red Planet. It's a live stream and audio podcast that's all about how we can make the world uh, a better place. And everything I do online gets supported through Patreon at patreon.com slash fistshark. And you know who else has a Patreon? James Stephanie Sterling. Hello, I do. Patreon.com slash Jimquisition. Um, that's what the Patreon is. Um, if you go on the Jimquisition.com, uh, I have some recently published reviews for Night at the Gates of Hell and Mythforce, um, plus the Lies of P review uh, that went up last week. Um, my next wrestling date is this Saturday. Uh, Saturday the 23rd of September I will be in Sheffield for Pursuit Pro Wrestling that's the wrestling training school that I um, uh, attend and they're having their first proper official public show show and that's Sheffield Saturday 23rd Um, the show's called First Pursuit and you can look up details if you just sort of look up Pursuit Pro Wrestling or PPW then on September 30th I will be in Preston for PCW, where I will be uh, defending the PCW Women's Championship. And if you look up PCW, um, I know know on Twitter, they're at PCW underscore UK. And uh, those are my next two upcoming dates, and as well as uh, Sovereign Pro Wrestling in Manchester on October 10th. Um, Thank you all so much for listening, as per usual, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.